and welcome to the Bucket Lister Podcast. Join your host, Keith Crockford, along with special guests who have traveled the world, here to share stories of their adventures and plenty of inspo to add to your bucket list. Now, let's get into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Bucket List Podcast. I am your host, Keith Crockford, and today I am flying solo again. And I'm going to chat to you about the 10 things you need to know before climbing Kilimanjaro, or before even booking it, actually, I think. Um, and obviously, I've just come back from it, and it's it's really interesting with people's expectations on Kilimanjaro when you get out there with a group of what what they think of it, beforehand what their thought process was how surprised they are when they get there so i thought today i'd just go through some of the questions and the things that you need to know before you might think about booking um kilimanjaro um first thing then is kilimanjaro is not a technical climb um, it's actually a hike. When people think of climbing a mountain, they have these images of harnesses and ropes and ice axes and crampons. And Kilimanjaro is definitely not like that. Um, Kilimanjaro does not require any technical skills and it is a walk up uh, a mountain. Um, so it's classed as a trekking peak. Um, so there are no special skills needed. Um, and there is no danger of falling off or falling into a crevasse or any of the other things that you see on um, some of the mountaineering films. Now, not saying that it's a easy walk. It's certainly not easy at all. It is, it is very challenging. But ultimately, it is just putting one foot in front of, your, in front of the other and, and walking up a very big hill. So that's the first thing. Kilimanjaro is not a technical climb. Um, it's a trek, it's a hike. Kilimanjaro is a trekking peak. So second thing is then is that basically we have a support team on the mountain that um, handles all of the carrying and all of the lifting of all of your gear. All you will need to require um, what require to carry is your day pack with just the things you need for that day and your water and snacks and those sorts of things. So or any tents, any food, all of that stuff is all carried up the mountain for you. And they are then fully supported. Um, so you don't have to carry any heavy packs. Um, you can pack all your stuff into a duffel bag that will be carried up by the porters. And then even like, you know, to the surprise of quite a lot of my recent guys that did the the trek with me is that actually on summit night we've got such a large team that come up with us on summit night that you know they weren't even carrying their day packs on summit night that they were being carried for them just to make it that little bit easier for them as well because you know if you've got two three liters of water in your pack you know your bag is going to be weighing um you know, four or five kilos with your snacks and a bit of extra clothing and that sort of stuff. So it's still quite a weight that you need to carry in your day pack. But, you know, you certainly haven't got to be carrying your tents and all those sorts of things with you, depending on which route you are on. The other big surprise that a lot of um, groups have when they come is how well you get fed on the mountain. You eat really well when you're on the mountain. Um, everything is is carried up for us um there are three meals a day um plenty of things like 
eggs, vegetables, carbs, protein, everything is considered. Um, you know, you'll almost have a three course dinner where you'll have soup to start, then there'll be a main and then there'll be a dessert as well. So one thing you certainly don't have to worry about is not being fed properly. There is plenty of food there. I think the other thing that you need, um, dietary requirements are very well catered for as long as they know well enough in advance. Um, I think if you are a fussy eater, um, then potentially you might need to take some things to supplement your, um, to supplement your diet. Uh, one of the big things on the mountain is that people do lose their appetite. Um, so sometimes people can't stomach what's put in front of them. Um, and therefore it might be that you've got, you know, protein bars, Trek bars, that sort of thing in your bag that actually, you know, you can make sure that you are getting enough, but there will definitely be enough food for you there, um, to, to be, you know, fed very well and not be hungry and whatever. But if you are a bit of a fussy eater, then maybe you want to take a few extra things with you to, to supplement your diet. Another thing is, is that Africa is warm, but the mountain can be very cold. And the problem with Kilimanjaro is you go through four different climate zones. So when you start off in the rainforest and you first come out into the open moorland, it can be very warm at those points. Like the last trip I was on, right up until base camp, I was still wearing shorts and T-shirt. It obviously got cold in the evenings and you needed to put trousers on and a, and a jacket on in the evenings. But during the day when you were trekking, it was quite warm. As soon as you get up to the base camp, though, and you're up to the, the 3,700, 4,000 meter point, um, then obviously it is going to get chilly in the evenings. And on summit night, it is going to get really cold. So, you know, expect temperatures below freezing um, on summit night. Make sure you've got enough layers. Make sure um, that you're not just relying on one big, thick, heavy jacket, that you've actually got plenty of layers to put on. Because the problem with it is, is the temperature changes. So on summit night, for example, as soon as the sun comes out, it starts to warm off, warm up, and then you start stripping your layers off. If you've only got one big coat, you haven't then got the option of just taking that off um, because you will still be cold at that point. Um, obviously sleeping bag wise, make sure you've got a good sleeping bag. Um, because again, it's warmer down the bottom, but when you get up to the, the base camp, it does get cold up there. So you need to make sure that you have got a nice warm sleeping bag ready for Kilimanjaro. Other one toilets. Now, obviously it's a big one on a lot of people's consideration when they're going to come and do a, um, a mountain trip is where am I going to go to the toilet? Now, obviously at the bucket list company, we run two different routes. We run the Lamosho route and we run the Marangu route. The Marangu route is the hut route, which is the podcast I did with Jake last week. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, head back a week and listen up on the Marangu route, but the Marangu route has toilet blocks in it. Um, they are kept um, fairly clean, I would say, not to Western standard, but there are a few English toilets in the toilet blocks. Um, you haven't got to hover. Um, the toilets at Kibo, though, are are not the best at all. Um, and, you know, they're long drops. There is no running water at Kibo at the base camp on the Marangu route. So up until you get to Kibo, I think the toilets are very good. Um, but once you... Um, 
once you're at Kibo, you haven't got a lot of choice. And actually, I do think sometimes, you know, if you just need to have a number one, it's better to head round a rock and do it rather than rather than going into the toilets. Um, on the other camped routes, they do have toilet huts. Um, they are just long drop toilets. Um, they are not very nice. Um, so I would always advise, as we do, is to take a toilet tent with you. Um, so make sure the company you're going with has your own toilet tent. Um, obviously, you're not going to take that personally yourself, um, but just make sure you do have a toilet tent in the group. And it's an option you can have for, you know, not a lot of extra money. And actually, it's a whole lot nicer. So if you're in a group, um, that is one way to go is with the toilet tent. Um there is limited electricity on the mountain, so don't think that you're going to really have the chance to charge things. Um, this year on the Marangu route, on the in the new huts, um, they have all got solar power and there are plug sockets in them now. Um, sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't. It was really dependent on how much sun it, it had during the day. Um, so don't rely on the fact that you're going to be able to charge your watches, your camera, your phones, you know, those sorts of things. Um, so make sure you do take a battery pack with you. Um, phone signal is, um, limited on the mountain. Um, you can get phone like on the Marangu route, for example, up until you get to, um, Harombo hut, there is phone signal, but again, it is very dependent on the weather um i did manage to kind of have 4g up until um harombo hut on, on the marangu route recently um they have now got wi-fi on the mountain and that kind of led to a massive conversation with my group about whether or not um that having wi-fi on the mountain was a good idea or not but um last year when i did it the wi-fi was free because they'd only just put it in um, but this year they are now charging for the Wi-Fi. So for six days on the mountain, it is $30 um, for you to have the Wi-Fi on the mountain now. Um, I think most of our group did opt for that option. Um, they did want to stay in touch. They did want to post fit pictures on Instagram and, and show people at home what they were doing, etc. Um, and the Wi-Fi, to be fair, was pretty good. Um, the Wi-Fi now goes all the way to the summit. So when you are on the summit, you now do have Wi-Fi up there as well. And the Wi-Fi is now going back down the Lamosho route. So they're now laying the cables down the Lamosho route as well. So both of those two routes will have um, will have Wi-Fi. Um, and it was good enough for, you know, uploading videos. Um, it was good enough for, you know, WhatsApp messages and a WhatsApp call. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's entirely up to you whether you want to be disconnected whilst you're on your trek or whether you're not, you want to stay connected to the outside world. But I think now the fact you have to pay for it, people now have that option of, I am going to pay for it or I'm not going to pay for it. And therefore you can keep off it. I think when it was free, it just gave people the, you know, the opportunity to click on it and go on it, et cetera. So, um, but yeah, obviously on the, the camped routes, you know, there is no plug sockets. There is no electricity like there is on the Marangu route. So, um, you know, just have a battery pack with you. It only needs to charge stuff for a few days. Um, so just think how you're getting on. Um, next thing, and it's really interesting because 
I never sugarcoat it when I'm briefing a group on how hard summit night is. Um, I will always say to people that summit night on Killy is probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing you will ever do. And everyone always kind of goes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then when they get back down, um, on the, after doing the summit and come back down, they'll then like, that is the hardest thing that I have ever done. Um, you certainly didn't sugarcoat that at all. And I think it's really important to sort of, you know, set people's expectations that summit night is going to be tough and they are going to have to, to dig deep. Um, but it's completely um, doable. And just remember that it is difficult for almost everybody. Like everybody is going through the same things that you're going through on summit night. It is very strenuous. It is completely against anything you've ever known before. Um, so, you know, getting up at 11 o'clock at night, starting walking at midnight, you know, the cold, the speed that you're walking at, all of these things are not something that you will generally do in normal life so it's just completely outside of most people's comfort zones you're not going to have much sleep you're tired you know the altitude is getting to you you know you're walking under a headlamp and you're just you know literally looking at one foot in front of the other um so it is really difficult um and like i said many people will say it's the hardest thing they've ever done and it does take some effort and as i always say to people that actually Climbing a mountain is only 40% physical um, and it's actually 60% mental. Like the number of times people say, I can't go on, I can't go on, like I can't do this anymore. And actually, you know, you give them a bit of a talking to and, you know, a couple of hours later, they're at the summit of Kilimanjaro and they can do it. And it's their mind that's telling them that they can't do it, but that they can completely do it. Everyone can completely do it. You just need to put one foot in front of the other so just remember um summit night is really tough but you can do it um you just need to be mentally prepared and i think that's you know we're going with you know going in a group as well the group supports each other um you know we just had 18 people on in our trip that just went up and we had eight all 18 stood on the summit together um because everybody helps each other and everybody keeps each other going i think if you were doing that on your own and you had no obviously you'd have a guide etc but having other peers there with you from your group certainly does push you on so have a think about if you're thinking of booking a kilimanjaro trip um you know do you want to go on your own or do you want to go with with a group and you know for me personally obviously i, I run a group travel company but I think doing it is a, with, with a group is certainly the best way of doing it. Um, next thing then is Kilimanjaro is expensive. Compared to a lot of other treks around the world, Kilimanjaro is, is one of the more expensive ones. And the main reason for that is the fees that the Kilimanjaro National Park charge to maintain um Kilimanjaro itself and to staff it etc um they charge on a per day basis so for example um everybody that's in the park is paying $70 per day national park fees so if you're on a five-day route that's 350 quid if you're on a um a nine-day route you're paying $630 um, so obviously the longer the route, the more expensive it's going to be. You then have to pay 
camping fees or hut fees on top of that. Um, and camping fees are, I think they're $50 per person per night. And then for the hut fees, they are $60, $60 per person per night. So in that sense, you know, it soon adds up to, you know, $120, $130 per night um, park fees for you to be on the mountain. So, you, and then you've got VAT to uh, VAT to add to that as well at 18%. So, for example, on a Marangu trek, you would be looking at $70 for six days and then another uh, five nights um, at $300. And then so your park fees are $720 with 18% added on to that as well, um, which I'm just trying to work out what that is very quickly, which basically brings it to $850 um, is just the park fees that you have to, or your company have to pay to have you on the mountain. Now, I really struggle then when I see some companies offering very cheap Kilimanjaro trips because the only thing that's now getting missed out is paying their staff and paying the porters and paying their guides and paying the cooks and paying every, everyone else a decent salary while they're on there. I mean, if you can imagine, so for our group, when we had 18 people going up last week, we had a team of over 60 people on the mountain with us. Now, we were on the hut route, so they weren't carrying any tents. They weren't carrying any of the camping equipment, the tables, the chairs, the dining tents. So had we been doing a... Um, a camping route with that many people, we would probably have had another 20 support staff to carry all that extra equipment. So all of a sudden you've got 80 people there that need paying from your group. And, you know, if you see some of these cheap prices, just now, you know what the park fees are, just question what they're not spending the money on then, because obviously the companies are still looking to make a profit as well. Um, and, you know, for us, we know that our guides, our porters uh, are properly equipped. They get paid a good salary, and that's what leads to the price that we charge for our trips. But there are you know, quite a lot of companies out there that are charging not a lot of money, and when you break that down, the only thing they can be missing out on is paying their staff properly. So please do consider that. Um, because actually you want good food, you want a good team um, looking after you. Um, and those two things cannot come at a cheap price with the national park fees as well. So just have a, a think about when you're pricing things up and just thinking what's included and what's not included. Um, moving on then to what else you need to know before you go. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say is obviously how easy Kilimanjaro is to access because Kilimanjaro has its own international airport. Um, obviously, there are no direct flights. Um, most people listen to this podcast in the UK, but there are no direct flights from the US or the UK to Kilimanjaro International. So you're always going to have to have a layover somewhere. Um, airlines that go to Kilimanjaro, um, Kenya Airways, Turkish, KLM, Qatar, 
they're kind of the main ones. So either you're going to be um, transiting in Nairobi, um, Doha, um, Amsterdam. Um, yeah, those are going to be, or Istanbul. So those are going to be your options of where you're going to be able to transit from. Um, flights can take anywhere from 14 hours to 20 hours from the UK, um, depending on your layover time. Um, so for example, the other day we had a six hour flight to, um, six and a half to Doha. Then we had a two hour layover and then another, um, seven hours then from Doha to Kilimanjaro on the way back, the way the timings worked out, it did end up with us having a seven hour, seven hour layover in Doha. Um, but everyone just kind of went into the lounge and chilled out and had a few free drinks in the lounge and enjoyed it. So, um, but have a think about where you're traveling from, but it is super easy to get to. Um, when you arrive in Kilimanjaro airport, most people are either going to go, um, out of the airport and turn right and stay in Moshi, or you're going to go out of the airport and turn left and stay in Arusha, depending on where your provider is based and potentially which route you are doing on the mountain as well. Um, obviously, some of the park gates are closer to Moshi, some of them are closer to Arusha. So just have a look at where you're, which route you're doing to, to where you're going to stay prior to. And then finally, the last thing that I want to say um, about if you are thinking of doing Kilimanjaro is to consider what you are going to do after you have done your trip. And you need to make this decision when you're booking it, otherwise it becomes too late. Um, but I've seen so many people go to Kilimanjaro and then regret not going onto a safari afterwards or not going onto Zanzibar afterwards. You know, they've booked it. And then, especially for us, where we've got groups and we've got some people at the end who are all heading off on safari or we've got people who are heading to Zanzibar. And then the people who are then heading home suddenly have got a massive FOMO because, you know, they, they've they not booked it and they kind of wish they had booked it. And now it's too late because their flight leaves tomorrow, et cetera, and they can't do anything to change it. So think about what you want to achieve when you head out to Tanzania if you're going to go and do Kilimanjaro because, you know, for the law, you know, part of the major cost of any Kilimanjaro trip is the long haul flight to Tanzania. Um, you know, if you can fit a safari in or you can fit Zanzibar in after your trip, then you might as well do it and only pay to go there once and pay for, you know, one long haul flight rather than thinking now I'm going to have to go back and you know, I really want to go on safari in Tanzania now, or actually Zanzibar looks amazing. I'd love to visit it now. And then you're having to book another international flight to get out there. If you can combine it into your trip, then um, get it booked all at the same time, sort yourselves out and you know what you're doing and don't have that fear of missing out when you, um, when everybody else is heading off on their safaris um, and you're about to pack your bags and head back, back home after you're, after your trek. So those are the 10 things that I wanted people to know about before um, booking Kilimanjaro. I think they are things that would better prepare you for your, for your trip um, and just give you a bit more of a, uh, give your expectations a bit more of, of where they need to be. 
um, to go. But obviously, there is loads of information on the Bucket List Company website on Kilimanjaro. There's loads of videos on the YouTube page. There are loads of blog posts um, in our knowledge center on the website. So do head over to that um, and, and have a look and read up. And obviously, if you've got any questions on Kilimanjaro, then you can always email into the office and either one of the team will be able to answer them or they'll pass them on to me and we can have a chat. And, you know, if you want advice on which route to do, when to go, what to take, you know, should I go to Zanzibar? Should I go on safari? Then that is what we are here for. Um, we're here to try and give you all of the information so you can then make the right decisions for you. So anyway, that's the end of the podcast this week. I've covered off my 10 things that you need to know about Kilimanjaro before booking it. And I will be back next week with another episode of the Bucket Lister podcast. So until then, thanks very much and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bucket Lister podcast. Be sure to click follow to be alerted for next week's episode. For more travel inspiration, check us out at www.thebucketlistcompany.co.uk or follow us on socials. See you next time.